that we've had the, uh, the last of the handouts, I think I can safely say tonight we actually do, um, because tonight's the last class. So um, I came across something that, kind of given the difficulty of, uh, of working through these last couple of chapters, I thought it might be uh, helpful. And um, you may wonder page numbers that says page 212 and uh, 213. Uh, that's obviously not our page numbers. This is out of a book called Overcoming by Steve Singleton. And everything that I've tried to say that I've probably droned on and on and on and on about, uh, he kind of gets down to these two pages of kind of giving an overview of these last two chapters and how the same method of interpretation of looking at the symbols in chapters 21 and 22 of the Holy City, uh, how all of that fits together. And I thought, uh, I just decided to go ahead and copy that for you. You can, um, it takes about 10 minutes or so to read through, and I think that way you, uh, you can have something that you can look back on uh, if need be that I think does a, a fairly good job of explaining uh, not only what we're doing, but kind of the rationale behind it and how we have been uh, dealing with the book of Revelation from the beginning. Um, looking at it specifically in its first century context as a word of hope and encouragement and warning to the first century church as she is about to face uh, an onslaught of greater persecution from the Roman Empire calling on the church to be faithful and then displaying in apocalyptic language and symbols of conflict between these different forces and animals and all sorts of symbols showing what the conflict is going to look like for the church, uh, the way that God is going to judge the enemies of his people and bring them to an end, and how in the end of this conflict God's people will be victorious and will overcome. And so the encouragement of the entire book is simply be faithful, be faithful witnesses, the Lamb is worthy Continue to worship, be true, and God will bring you through this. God will bring you victory. Regardless of what you're facing, uh, it is worth any cost to remain true uh, to the Lord. We've come to the, uh, uh, these last sections here in chapters 21 and 22. We've read uh, last, the last two weeks about the New Jerusalem and then finished up with this scene uh, Essentially, out of Ezekiel 40, the, the water of life, this amazing city. And on page 68 of your notes, just going to kind of, we'll be starting there tonight, and our plan will be to, uh, to finish through these pages. Um, just, there's some bullet points there on page 68 that uh, remind us of at least some of the descriptive terms that are used in these last uh, couple of chapters about this city. And, uh, and we have identified in our study, we've identified the city not as a place, not as a geographical location, not as somewhere we will one day go at the end of time, but rather this is a description of the people of God, the church of God, victorious over her enemies, living in triumph. And it's not, uh, it's not about something that is futuristic, but something that is true of the church after she wins her victory against her persecutors. And, the, and that the symbols here about the church 
there's a sense in which this is always who we are as the church of Christ. Uh, here are some of the descriptive terms. Uh, twelve, um, the twelve gates of the city are the twelve tribes. The twelve foundations are the twelve apostles. Um, this again showing that the, the entrance and the foundation, uh, they are marked with the number of God's people. That number twelve, which for the people of God, that that's, this is a, the foundation of this, of this city, of this fellowship, is the, the life and the teachings of the apostles. The dimensions of, remember, 12,000 stadia, long, wide, and high. This, this city is a perfect cube. If you translate it into miles, it's like over 1,400 miles, but the point is 12,000. I won't go back over the significance of the um, these numbers again, the 12, the 1,000, but again, it's just it's a matter of speaking of the, the people of God and using those numbers uh, to represent that. The cube in the Old Testament is the most holy place, the holy of holies. And here we have the city is a cube. There's no temple in it. it this, this whole being, this whole uh, city is the temple because God and the Lamb are there present with the people. There's no need of the sun. Darkness outside, but the nations can continue to walk by the light of this city. Because the church is a city set on a hill, filled with God's glory, and they, the church is the only hope of the nations. To look to the people of God to find light for life. The, their splendor into this city, which shows the vindication of the church as others are coming in. The gates are never shut, there's no night, there's no need uh, for protection. Uh, nothing impure can ever enter there. Um, and God dwells within her. And then, of course, the river of the water of life that flows from the throne. Tree of life is there bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Again, we continue to have a repetition of the number 12. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there is no curse. And, and essentially what we have here in this image of the city is... Just a beautiful description of the spiritual realities of what it means for those who are in Christ Jesus and in and who are part of His kingdom. Uh, that we in the church we are this city. We are the temple of the living God, where God dwells. We are made holy by His presence. The doors are open. The nations can come in. There's healing here. There's light here. And uh, there you see the kind of the evangelistic. Uh, thrust of the of the image that people are invited to are, are basically are going to be invited to come in to find life to find healing to find this this water of life and the tree of life and uh, at a time when the church is about to undergo persecution this image of the church in her triumph and glory over her enemies and this this description of the perfect fellowship that we do enjoy with God is going to be of great comfort and encouragement to the church, uh, not only then, uh, but it continues to be. And uh, we've spent a couple of weeks on that. I just wanted to touch on that before we we finish up with kind of the epilogue here, uh, beginning at verse 6. But uh, I will stop for just a second to see if there might be a question or comment before, before going on. Okay, feel free to raise a hand in the question at any time. 
the visions at this point, we, we, uh, we're at a point where this whole uh, revelation is coming to a conclusion. And uh, an angel is still speaking to John, but we, we have in this, this final section uh, bringing all of these thoughts to a close and giving a final charge to those who are reading this book. He said to me, that's the angel that's been talking to John up until this point. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. So this epilogue begins with this uh, proclamation that the words, everything that John has heard, everything that John has seen is trustworthy, is true. The angel points out who has sent him, the God of the spirits of the prophets. Um, and he, he tells John that these are things that must soon take place. I think there's something important about the word must These things must take place. They must take place because of the nature of God, because of God's righteousness, because God is a God who will protect His people and keep promises to them, because God is a God who will judge evil and who will bless righteousness. Because of that, these things must take place. Divine justice is at stake. Uh, God, God is going... Uh, to respond with judgment and destruction against people who blaspheme his name and attack his church, and he will vindicate his people and bring them triumph. That's because, because of who he is. These things must take place. There's no question about it. The nature of God essentially demands that this happens, that everything in this book transpires. It must soon take place. We've heard that throughout the book on a a variety of occasions, beginning with the opening. If you remember the opening of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And again, we have this, this assurance that, um, that God is about to act, that what this book is talking about is going to be unfolding uh, soon, and um, and so we have, uh, based on those words and that declaration, we have looked at the book up to this point as referring to that first century situation. Then you have this word of promise and blessing uh, from Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon. 
And when you hear the words, I am coming soon, apart from if we hadn't been studying Revelation for the last three years or whatever it's been, uh, and, and you're just reading Revelation and you hear Jesus say, I'm coming soon, what do we typically think of? What would we typically think of when Jesus says, I'm coming? We typically think of the second coming, wouldn't we? We think Jesus is saying, oh, Jesus is going to be coming. Uh, Jesus is going to be coming soon. And that, that, that it's speaking of uh, the end of time and the return of Jesus, the consummation of all things. This is the ninth time in the book of Revelation that Jesus has talked about coming. And uh, on several of those occasions, coming soon. Um, take just... Just to notice a few of them. Um, Chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. Then remember the the letters to the seven churches. As Jesus warns them and encourages them, take a look at chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from this is Jesus talking to the church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus is speaking to that church and telling them if there's not repentance soon, he will come and he will remove them from, from being among his people. Uh, this is a reference in chapter 2, not to the end of time, but to Jesus responding uh, to the situation of that church. Similarly, in verse 16, uh, to the church at Pergamum, uh, chapter 2, 16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is talking about coming into that situation in time, in history, and doing something uh, uh, within, uh, within that situation. Yes? I th- yeah, I... In Revelation, the church, since the churches in the vision are represented by lampstands, each of them is, is a represented by a lampstand, to remove the lampstand is just a, it's a way of saying that he is essentially removing the legitimacy of them as his people. I don't know, uh, they're no longer truly his people. Sure. I, oh, I think if, if it comes to there being some righteous people in the church who aren't going along with the evil, I think this, this, kind, of, this kind of speech isn't condemning a righteous person. But it's a... It's a again, we're dealing, we're dealing in images so that to remove a lampstand is just a way of saying, you know, you're no, I'm, I'm no longer walking among you. You're no longer legitimately part of me. Uh, and, and that's the warning to the whole church if there's not repentance. But again, I don't think you could press that to the point that if there's five righteous people there, that well, sorry, you know, you're gone. You, you know, even even though you've been faithful, there there isn't hope. I think it's just a kind of a way of saying this church, you need to repent or you're going to be gone, and uh, you know that they're no longer going to be in that kind of a relationship with Jesus. But, but I'm kind of referencing these just to point out. 
in chapter 2, verse 25, chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 11. I won't read them all. In each of these places, Jesus speaks to a church and says he's coming there to do something. And my only point is that when Jesus speaks about coming in the book of Revelation, he's not talking about coming at the end of time. He's talking about coming in relationship to what this book is all about. And so when we come to the end, the, the, the words here at the end of the book, we've got to take in context with the whole book. When, uh, and we're going to hear a lot of things about coming here in just a minute as, as we go to the next paragraph. But I just want to, to kind of point out that uh, when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, uh, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He's saying to the church, look, you be faithful because it's about to happen. And I'm coming, and you need to be ready. And the coming here has to do with his judgment against the enemies of the church and his saving of them if they are going to be faithful to him. And so, um, again, and we'll see if that seems a little different. When we read just a little bit more, we're going to see that as well. Uh, Jesus, at this point, pronounces a blessing on those who keep the words of the prophecy of the book. Yes. Um, y- yes. Um, Ellen said, it, it is, is that phrase ever used about, uh, specifically about Jesus coming to do something against Rome? And I think in, in the same chapter, verse 12, uh, chapter 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And um, I think right here that that would include... Uh, he's talking about the judgment that his coming will bring. Um, we've, we've talked about this. It's been so long ago. But often in Scripture, when you read about God coming on the clouds or, or the Son of Man coming on the clouds, it's not... There, might, there are a couple of times where that may refer to the end of time, but typically... The coming on the clouds is a reference to God coming in judgment. As far back as the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 7, you, you read about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and it's his judgment against a, an empire in the world. So when, when Jesus speaks about coming in the clouds back in chapter 1, it's speaking about him coming to judge, both to, both to uh, punish and also to reward. So the coming in, this, uh, in the close is a reference to the same uh, use of that term throughout the book. Um, that, that Jesus, that these things are happening soon, Jesus is coming, it's about to transpire. John then uh, makes an authentication, verifying his own personal witness in verses 8 and 9. And um, once more, in awe of the angel, he falls down to worship. The angel, of course, immediately corrects that and tells him that only God is to be worshipped. And, uh, and then again in verses 10 and 11, where, as we read a moment ago, the words of the prophecy are not to be sealed for the time is near. Um, at the very outset of the class, when we were dealing with this issue of the nearness and the timing of the book, um, we made reference um, to Daniel chapter 8.26 where Daniel is given a vision and he's told 
at the end of that vision to seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Uh, and the vision in chapter 8 of Daniel is about the, uh, the coming of the Greek kingdom under Alexander the Great, its division, and then how one aspect of that kingdom will persecute the Jews. Uh, he is told uh, this prophecy, which is going to be fulfilled uh, several hundred years down the road, uh, is to be sealed up um, because, it's, because it's far off. John is told, not, by contrast, not to seal up the words of the book. And we've talked about how this, the fulfillment of Revelation uh, takes place. There's, a, there's an aspect of it that isn't complete until the eventual fall of Rome. But we know in the first century, Domitian is going to increase the persecution against the church, and Domitian himself is going to suffer a downfall, uh, so that, that uh, some of the, the reality of what the book of Revelation is about is going to be transpiring in the lifetime of the original readers. And so, that, again, the time is near. Uh, the action is, is, is just on the horizon. And so John is told, don't seal it up, uh, because people need to know that we're, we're crossing that threshold. And uh, the action is close, close at hand. And then kind of an interesting sort of prophetic phrase, let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What do you make of that? Sound like God wants evil people to stay evil? What is that? Let the evildoers still do evil, let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I think essentially what's being said here is uh, and, of course, God is never encouraging people to do evil. Uh, that's not God's will. But basically, as this judgment is impending, um, this is essentially kind of saying, you know, God's about to act. So if you're bent on evil, you continue in that. If you're, if you're being true to God, be true to that, because he's coming and judgment's going to take place. Uh, and, and you can be sure of that. So if you're, if, you know, if you, let the evildoer continue, let the righteous man continue to be righteous because judgment is at hand and God is going to mete it out. And it's just kind of a way of uh, assuring that God sees people truly as they are, whether for him or against him, and that, the, that judgment for or against them is sealed and that God is going to bring that judgment. And so it's a... Uh, in a sense, it's an encouragement to the church to say, look, God sees what's going on. He's going to deal with the evil people. You continue uh, to be righteous and do right, and he's going to take care of you as well. All right, verses 12 through 16. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star." 
So where John has authenticated being the recipient of this prophecy by the, uh, from, the, meteor, from the, uh, the angel, Jesus now authenticates this prophecy. He speaks, saying that he's coming soon, that he's coming with, uh, to bring justice. And um, the, there's a quote here. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Is a, a quote out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, where God promises to judge Babylon and bring Israel home. Think of the comparison as we've looked at Revelation and the identification of Rome as some sort of cryptic Babylon. And here we have a, 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 a passage quoted out of Isaiah 40 where God, is, where God said to Israel, Look, I'm coming soon. My recompense is with me. And he's in that, uh, in that setting speaking about bringing judgment on Babylon and bringing Israel home. And here those same words are applied to talk about judgment against Rome, essentially the new Babylon the church is facing, and uh, the vindication of the church as, as, as the Lord comes. And it's just a way of encouraging them uh, to stay true. Promises a blessing. Um, uh, for those who've washed their robes, those who've been cleansed by his blood, those who, who, ha- who have been cleansed have right to the tree of life. You can enter the city by the gates. That's the, the entrance there into, the, uh, into this holy city. Outside are the people that um, stand against God and that have been mentioned at other places in the book. Jesus then basically says, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm the source of this. I'm the one who, star- I'm the one who sent the angel. Uh, I'm the root and descendant of David. I'm the bright morning star. And this word uh, is faithful and true. You can accept this word. Yes? I, my understanding is that, that the, the coming throughout the book is talking about him coming in reference to the promises of the book to come against Rome and for the church. Not the second coming. Yeah, not the, not the second coming. And in fact, we, that plays out a little bit more, Gene, right here in the next, in the next verse. Uh, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And here, is, as Jesus has promised to be uh, his coming essentially on the horizon, notice the response. The Spirit, the Spirit of God is, is, is calling for that to happen. The Spirit is calling out for Jesus to come, to act, to do. The bride the church is saying, come, come, Jesus, come and do this. We're ready for you to take this action. Let the one who hears, let the reader, the person who's reading this, even from the first century, let that person who's reading this and hearing the promise of Jesus to come in judgment and deliverance, let them say to Jesus, come, we're ready for you to come. We're ready for this to happen. And then at the second half of the verse, there's this amazing invitation and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you hear that? The invitation there. This is an invitation to people who aren't, in the, who aren't part of the city. 
this is just a gracious invitation. It is not too late to come in. You can still enter this place of fellowship with God. You can still come into this place of healing and of light and of life. You can still drink from the water of life. That's chose to, to sing that song tonight. There's a fountain free. It's, I mean, it, it's, this is the fountain free. And this is the invitation that that song comes from. Need, come in. Come in and drink the water. It's here. Um, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so, uh, while the church and the spirit and the reader is calling the Lord to come, essentially, God says to those who are thirsty, who, who are looking for life, calls for them to come, to come and to enter. It's just, a, to me, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful invitation um, that, uh, that God gives here. And the... The closing words. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. The warning I think we're, we're very familiar with. This is the word of God. This is, this is a message that God through Jesus and the mediatorship of an angel has brought to the Apostle John to give to the church. These aren't just people's ideas. Uh, this is the word of God. And therefore, to tamper with it in any way uh, is to uh, invite the full judgment of God. And the final affirmation in the promise um, is from Jesus himself, that he is coming soon. And the response then of John and all of the faithful is for him to come. And uh, they're, they're ready. When you're in the middle of a great tribulation or when you have witnessed perhaps a great injustice in someone's life, you're ready for God to come. You're ready for him to come and do something about it. Uh, uh, we, you know, we, we invoke God's activity in situations like that in our own lives and in the lives of the people we love. Um, and here, essentially, as the church is uh, facing days that are going to be increasingly more difficult for them, and there is going to be great pressure brought upon them to be faithful, they've already suffered. There are already people who have died. We've been told in this, in this book it's about to get worse um, as the beast returns to, to bring persecution against the church. Uh, and we, we've seen throughout the book how Jesus is going to come, the rider on the white horse, how he's going to come in, how he's going to destroy these enemies, how he's going to bring victory to the people. It's no wonder that at the end of the book, the people are saying, come quickly. We're ready now. Um, remember the souls under the altar at the first of the book. How long, O oh Lord? How much longer do we have to wait? 
We're ready for you to come. You're saying, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, come, come now. And then John adds this final uh, benediction and grace uh, or blessing of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And, and I think as, um, as the book comes to a close, if we again put ourselves back in that first century situation and imagine being one of those people who's perhaps whose businesses is coming under attack or who's been ostracized in their community or there's pressure coming upon them and, and it's going to be growing pressure to worship the emperor and things are just getting darker and darker. Uh, this is a book in these amazing symbols and images of the apocalyptic language that shows this conflict raging and shows the victory of the Lamb and of the people of God. And... Um, it kind of comes down to that, doesn't it? The victory of the Lamb. God's on the throne. The Lamb is victorious. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Be a faithful witness, regardless of the persecution, because Jesus has promised to come and to judge and to bring reward. And, um, and I think that, that's a message that the church always needs to hear. Um, we know in a very small way by comparison to some others uh, what it's like to be ridiculed at times or made fun of uh, and sometimes to be uh, persecuted in heavier ways uh, more hurtful ways because of our faith but we also know that there are people living in our world today who are being put to death for the faith uh, there are people who are losing their jobs in places because of their faith. Um, that, that battle that, that we see in all of these images describing the first century nemesis of the church and her persecutor, those, those realities continue to be true for God's people throughout time. And that's the relevance of the book of Revelation. Because regardless of what time we're living in, the message of victory and God's faithfulness is true. And um, the end result is uh, a, new, a new environment, a new heaven, a new earth. And uh, something that I did want to read, I just thought of one little paragraph in here. As we've dealt with these chapters and really focused on these last two chapters, dealing more with um, the church in time rather than eternity um, I just at the bottom of page 213 um, let me uh, the last two paragraphs if Christians could ever could realize that right now we are citizens of the new Jerusalem that right now we walk its street and partake of the fruit of its trees what a transformation our thinking would undergo John wrote this to be a comfort for Christians facing the horrifying persecution for us, it is also a comfort, but it is so much more. It fills our hearts with praise, knowing that we serve such a gracious, gracious and generous benefactor. Praise should be there in our hearts, but also determination. We should be resolved that nothing will keep us from experiencing right now our fellowship with God, who makes his dwelling with human beings. We should be resolved also to gain the greater fellowship with him and with each other, which eternity will bring. 
If the glories of the new Jerusalem describe our fellowship with God now, how much greater will be the glories of eternity? Every glimpse of heaven we get in Revelation involves praise and worship. Every heart sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience must fill with gratitude. Every body washed in clean water must dedicate its members to serve God Almighty and the Lamb. This is the message of Revelation. Christ is worth the price. Whether you pay with time or money or confiscated property or suffering or your life's blood, Jesus Christ is worth every sacrifice. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I'm not sure if we should just have a closing prayer or not, but I would, I will open things up for questions, just kidding. If anybody has a question or a comment. All right, we'll leave it at that. Lord willing, if we don't burn things down tomorrow night with all the fireworks, Earl, <laughs> next, next Wednesday we'll, uh, we'll start our... Uh, summer uh, film series on Wednesday night so invite you all back for that it will not be on Revelation so sorry about that but I want to thank all of you for hanging in there Um, most of you have been here about every week and it's at times um, I think it's probably There's a lot of attending to do, a lot of focusing over the last several months, and I really appreciate uh, your willingness to do that. I thank everyone who's asked questions, uh, who's uh, kind of called us to go back and go over things and, and uh, do our very best to make sense of, of, uh, of things that might not have been made sense the first time. But uh, just hope and pray that uh, at the end of this, um, that that you feel a sense of encouragement in any trial that comes your way in life to know that the promises of this book that were true then for the church in the first century continue to be true. Uh, I would recommend, if you, if you want something uh, a little more than the notes I've given you, uh, you can go online and order the book, I believe it's called Overcoming by Steve Singleton. It's available as a PDF for $9.95, or you can buy the book for $40. Uh, if you'd like it and you don't buy things online and don't download PDFs, I'll be glad to do it for you, and uh, I can print it out for you. If you're, uh, uh, But anyway, it's, it has over 300 pages. It's lots of information, lots of information. Uh, let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the, the several months that we've been together in this amazing, inspired work. From you, through the Holy Spirit and Jesus, through an angel, to John, to us. Uh, Father, we confess our frailty in completely understanding, and we confess that at times in our doing our very best to understand we may miss the mark but we we thank you for being with us and uh, helping us at least Father to consider try to do our best to consider consistently a particular view of this book that 
that recognizes the importance of the first century setting and the original readers. We pray, though, Father, that now 21 centuries later, that this message is still so very important to us and such an encouragement to us because the principles are forever true. We go back to chapter 4 and we see you on the throne. Father, no matter what's going on in this world, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how chaotic things may seem, you are on your throne. You rule. You are not surprised. You are not overwhelmed or challenged by anything or anyone. Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is at your right hand. As he did then, he holds the future today in his hands, Father. You and he know. And we look to your throne, and we look to the center of all things to find you there, Father, knowing then that we can worship you, whatever's going on in this earth, whatever's going on in our life, for you will work out your will. You will be faithful to us. And our prayer, Father, as we come to the close of this study, is that above all, we will be faithful to you. May we, like those of the first century that this letter is originally written to, may we be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ our Lord, never compromising, never bending, never wavering, ready to endure any challenge or persecution, any form of suffering, Father, on behalf of you and your Son, Jesus Christ, knowing that you are our God and will bring us through. We long to know one day the life which we already have a foretaste of in the temple here on earth in your church in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Save us in that final day, Father, when all things are finally once and for all truly new. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.